Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, gladiators and how they lived, fought, and died in ancient Rome. De Valera and FDR, Irish and American diplomacy in the 1930s. Biomedical controversies in Catholic Ireland. Remembering Maynooth College across four centuries. And finally, to end the show, we'll be wandering Wicklow through the brilliant photographs of Father Brown. Now, last week, we looked back at the wit and wisdom of the ancient poet Horace. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our other shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show, Living, Fighting and Dying in Ancient Rome. The Roman army was the greatest fighting machine the ancient world produced. The Roman Empire depended on soldiers not just to win its wars, defend its frontiers and control the seas, but also to act as the engine of the state. They served as tax collectors, policemen, surveyors, civil engineers, and, if they survived, in retirement as civic worthies, craftsmen and politicians. Some even rose to become emperors. And a new book tells the story brilliantly. It's called Gladius, Living, Fighting and Dying in the Roman Army. It's published in hardback by Little Brown and cost £25 sterling, so about €28. The author is Guy Della Bedwire. And Guy, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you. And that really is a fascinating part of the story of this book, the fact that the Roman army wasn't just there to fight its battles and win the wars, but the state needed it to do all of these other functions and jobs as well. Absolutely right. If you think about the world we live in today, government has all sorts of different mechanisms and people that it can use to interact with, control, administer, tax and serve people with. But in the ancient world, um, if you go right back, I suppose, to ancient Egypt, if you like, or that kind of period, you've got a totally absolutist monarchy. Jump on to the Roman world and you've got a very early beginning of a modern type super state, but it has none of today's sophistications. They've got um, a legal system, obviously. Uh, They have a whole uh, constitution, but... The only way the Roman world can really interact with everyone around it is through the army. And because the army was the way that they gained their territory and they also had to gain that territory, ironically, to pay the army. But the army is the only concentration of manpower that the state has under its control. So they end up using soldiers for everything, not just fighting, but taxing building roads, surveying property. They even manned the prisons. Uh, They went round all over the place um, guarding trade routes, but they also uh, were to be found in just about every single community, acting at every level that the state needed to be present in. And what's also interesting is that there are so many sources for a study like this that you you have official records, but then you also have things like private letters. You're able to study uh, tombstones and use graffiti and 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 tell and explore the lives of these people from all of these uh, different types of sources. That's correct, but it's it's also not correct in the sense that that record is extremely patchy. The book, when I wrote it, um, covers a period of really about 500 years, which is an awfully long time. I mean, that's taking us right the way back to uh, the equivalent length of time between us and the Tudor period. 
and the sources are scattered all the way across that. Now, the first 200 years of that are the Roman Republic, um, and that's the main bit. I've got. The Roman Republic's much longer than that, but I concentrated on the last 200 years of the Roman Republic. And there's an awful lot of story of the great wars there between Rome and its rivals like Carthage and then great wars of conquest. But there's very little from that period about individual soldiers. Now, it's um, at the uh, the reign of Augustus, so just over 2000 years ago, that the emperors start. And that's when the army becomes a standing organisation. And for around 200 to 250 years after Augustus, we've got an awful lot of things like tombstones and letters, but far less in the way of wars of conquest, because that wasn't really going on anything like so much. So really, when I had to put this together, it was drawing bits of source material of quite different types from uh, very different periods within that band of time. Some legionaries presumably were lucky and got a good posting and perhaps they might be a, a bodyguard for the emperor or something. But others could have been sent off to some uh, dismal frontier uh, to serve in the garrison there. So what determined whether you ended up with a good posting or a bad one? Well, um, let's be absolutely clear that the Roman army wasn't just legionaries. Legionaries were the citizen legionaries, uh, citizen soldiers. And they were the ones who most people have heard of, you know, like the Ninth Legion, Hispana, a group of around 5,000 men. And they were dispersed largely around the frontiers. Not all of them, but the vast majority of them were dispersed in frontier provinces. But to do the dirty work on the actual frontiers, what the Romans were very good at was hiring provincial soldiers who had the sweetener of if you served in the Roman army and you covered yourself with glory and you behaved well, then after 25 years, you would get a, a, an honourable discharge and Roman citizenship for yourself and your family. And those were the ones sitting on along the forts on Hadrian's Wall. Now, the legionaries had built Hadrian's Wall, but the men who found themselves stuck in lonely outposts on Hadrian's Wall were much more likely to be drawn from somewhere like Germany or Gaul or, or anywhere else on the remote provincial frontiers of the Roman Empire. But not as far as Ireland. Why was that? Was the army never tempted to come over here? I think I think I would turn that question on its head and say that, to be perfectly honest, the Roman world was pushing it by invading Britain in the first place. But Britain, of course, was much closer. It was really only... Uh, Britain was the only major province conquered in the days of the emperors that was held on to. But it involved a sea crossing. Britain itself was an intractable place. It was very difficult to conquer. It was remote. It required one of the largest garrisons in the Roman world. So during the first century or so of its, so half century or so of its occupation, it has four legions. They were able to reduce that to three. Uh, but so, and also a very considerable number of the provincial troops were put here as well. Now, with Britain, they found that in the part that we call England, that was fairly fertile and they were uh, uh, that could be farmed quite satisfactorily and they could get mineral resources from the highlands and Cornwall and Wales, for example. But at the risk of sounding terribly rude about Ireland, it really was not going to be worth it. They were going to have to cross a wider sea, the Irish Sea, to get there. We know that they traded with Ireland because Roman materials turned up there and we know a governor called Agricola considered it. But really, 
they were they were not really in profit with invading the mainland of Britain, let alone with uh, Ireland. So I'm not at all surprised they never bothered. It's a fascinating book and it it looks at the army in a different way from other books because it's not just preoccupied with battles or with uh, the nuts and bolts of the organisation. It's it's looking at the lives and the individuals and the different types of roles. Absolutely. You see, it's a terribly popular subject, the Roman army, and I, I found that an awful lot of books are really about army structure and hierarchy and, and battles and so on. But what has always really fascinated me is the idea that it's a little bit like Samuel Pepys's diary. If you pick up a letter from a soldier or you pick up an inscription like a tombstone, for example, that marks out his life, it's like throwing open a window on the past. And just for a brief moment, you're reminded of the fact you're not looking at an instant. You're actually looking at someone's whole life, someone who was born in that time, grew up, joined the Roman army, had that whole experience. And uh, just that opportunity to remember that they lived there and that was their time and lives have beginning, middles and ends. And it's all long ago and it's all very dusty and long in the past. But that's just that magical sense that you can feel them being alive. And by being able to read their texts, it's for a moment you're actually one-on-one with them. If you could go back in time, would it be a career that uh, one would recommend to a, a young man? What Were there good career prospects uh, afterwards? Uh, was it a job that was respected widely? Was it a job that paid well? It had a very great deal in it for a young man, especially if he came from a very modest or ordinary background, um, you couldn't get in if you were a slave or an ex-slave. That was impossible. And, and men who got into the army that way uh, were thrown out if they were discovered. But the truth is that for, for a man, if he, could, if he could get all the way through a military career, most of which he would have spent his time twiddling his thumbs or d- doing government jobs rather than fighting. When you came out the other end, there was a very good chance that you'd get a huge handout um, and you would be able to set yourself up for the latter part of your life, perhaps in a new business. Lots of evidence for men who've been in the army becoming councillors in, in city communities around the world, becoming bigwigs in the towns perhaps from which they'd come or where they'd settled. And once they'd done that, they'd establish their families. And that could uh, echo down for, for centuries afterwards. OK, well, it's a very interesting book indeed. And I think our listeners love their Roman history. And I think uh, it's a book that will appeal to very many of them. It's called Gladius, Living, Fighting and Dying in the Roman Army. It's published in hardback by Little Brown and costs £25 sterling, so about €28. Euro. The author is Guy Della Bedwire. And Guy, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Not at all. My pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book explores how Irish and American diplomacy operated in Washington, D.C. and Dublin during the 1930s era of economic depression, rising fascism and Nazism. The book is called De Valera and Roosevelt, Irish and American Diplomacy in Times of Crisis, 1932 to 1939. It's published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Bernadette Whelan to the show tonight. Bernadette, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Patrick. Evening to you. It's a fascinating study because it doesn't just look at the formal diplomatic relationships that exist, but it also tries and looks at the informal diplomacy that was going on during this period. That's right. Um, the book is structured around the exact approach that you've identified there, which is also how, in a way, diplomacy 
operates. Um, I've tried to, uh, in the first half of the book, I've tried to identify who the diplomats were and then try and recreate their lives. Um, And then the second half of the book looks at policy. Now, obviously, diplomats are not responsible for the state of relations between countries, um, but they uh, are, are but where we can see their influence, obviously, is the interpretation of issues, the tone, the atmosphere, the information they gather. Um, and then, of course, how they go about gaining access to key individuals. So the, what we see is that the, the practice of diplomacy, it's not linear. It's not a country has aims and objectives, which, of course, they do. But then and then it ends up in treaties and um, agreements. But it's, uh, what I'm interested in is what happens in the middle, in a sense. So that first half, as I say, really looks at the the informal diplomacy, what some have called soft power, um, and what are the sources of soft power I examine there, and how are they best used then on a country's behalf. And then, as I said, the second half of the book then looks at the actual policy issues and how the diplomats role in specific issues uh, throughout the 30s. And it seems like Washington, D.C. was a very good place and an enjoyable place to be if you were a diplomat uh, from about 1933 on, certainly from when FDR was in power. Absolutely. And this was one of the, I think, surprises that that's not just I, but I think probably others of scholars who've looked at material have also examined, um, and but particularly obviously from an Irish perspective, is that there is very little sense or evidence of the Depression actually hurting or affecting the way um, diplomacy operated. The diplomatic world in Washington in the 1930s was obviously a very different place than the diplomatic world in Dublin in the 1930s. It's a, D.C. is a much more complicated, complex structure. But the, the aim for the, the diplomat is exactly the same. As I said, to gather as much information as possible, um, to turn it into useful information, and then to try and expand the mutual understandings um, uh, between the countries and within Washington, you see immediate changes after the Roosevelt's come in. I mean, one of the things, one of the ways that our piece of evidence we have there would be that um, in uh, one of Roosevelt's first um, lo- um, afternoon meetings, uh, Secretary Wallace comes in late. He's been at a lunch in the Irish legation. And then Roosevelt lets it be known that he doesn't want any of this to happen again, the kind of interruptions or whatever stage that Secretary Wallace came in, Wallace came in into the meeting. Um, so it, um, it was a, an interesting world. It was a complex world um, and very, very difficult to manoeuvre for a country that had so few resources in terms of its diplomatic um, personnel on the ground and the resources they were given then to um, organise their uh, contacts and indeed to live their lives, which is why then in turn spouses and the wife of and they're all males, the wife of the diplomat becomes important in this period and has an important role to play. The Irish sweepstakes feature as well. And uh, the Americans seem to have uh, been very annoyed at, uh, at the fact that uh, uh, <laughs> they, they couldn't stop this. Indeed, they were extremely annoyed. Um, obviously, the part of the reason was that obviously uh, gambling was illegal in America at the time. Uh, it was also illegal to send uh, to, for tickets to go between states. That was illegal. Um, so in the States, then, you had the State Department, the Postal Services, uh, and then the even Secret Services of all the different departments, which are quite diffuse at the time. Um, they're all having to act on and try and restrict um, the number of tickets that are flooding into the States. And in turn, what happens, people get the tickets, 
to sell and then they complain to the State Department saying, I don't want any involvement in this. Why is this coming my way? And the extent of the flood of the material coming into the States then meant that the State Department eventually had to act. And there was a kind of semi-protest eventually in 1938, which uh, John Cuddy in Dublin was forced to um, deal with and to present to the Irish government. But of course, de Valera... Uh, was able then to explain that really, uh, and in his Jesuitical usual fashion, that the um, sweepstake had nothing to do with the Irish government, and of course, even though it was building the hospital infrastructure, uh, they had no um, no role at all in the way it was organised and could do nothing about it. But the issue from the diplomatic perspective was the extent of the irritation within these US agencies, and then how in turn it would affect the attempt by the Irish uh, um, diplomats to actually start trade negotiations and secure an American-Irish uh, trade agreement. And that, that is, uh, was an important factor uh, in why it was so delayed. And was it true that even uh, the president was sent uh, a book of the <laughs> tickets to sell? Indeed, from one Thomas Harris from Clara in County Offaly, who sent him the, uh, a letter including a book of tickets, uh, asked him if he would sell the 10 tickets and he could keep two free tickets but he was to return the £6 to Harris in time for the next horse race. <laughs> Very good. We don't know, though, if there are any winners there or not. Indeed. <laughs> Certainly not Roosevelt. <laughs> it's, it's interesting the way both the United States and Ireland were neutral uh, in 1939, but yet very different approaches to the Second World War. And it definitely seems like FTR was more interested in the relationship with the United Kingdom than with Ireland. Yeah, obviously. I, I think once any of the Irish diplomats arrive in the US um, attempting to work on behalf of their government, um, one of the things they begin to realise is that they're, they're tasked with, and particularly after de Valera gets in, implementing what he calls a special relationship. But what they quickly realise is that the special relationship is the American-British special relationship. And that's the one that begins to come, as we know, so important uh, for Roosevelt from 38, 39 onwards. And that's one of the flaws, really, in Irish diplomacy. Uh, and I think it's one of the, what was identified even at the time by John Cudahy, who was the U.S. minister in Ireland. He quickly identified that the flaw in de Valera's thinking about America was, of course, partition. And so, therefore, you have de Valera moving towards isolationism and neutrality, as he does, albeit that Ireland has a benevolent neutrality, um, and the Americans becoming less, um, moving obviously closer towards the allied countries and entering the war and understanding less and less why de Valera and Ireland is assuming a position of neutrality. And of course, the two men on the ground by that stage would be Robert Brennan in Washington and uh, David Gray in, in Dublin, uh, certainly in no way assist any change in that, uh, in that kind of oppositional view, which in particular is particularly strong in D.C., and what the book also shows is that there could be tension as well in other ways when uh, if there was a feeling on the Irish side that perhaps uh, the Irish status or the Irish state wasn't being properly treated. A, a, a constant theme and another source of irritation. Any time, for example, any document or statement comes out from uh, any official figure within the US administration which does not separate Ireland, the fair thought, out from uh, Great Britain and its dominions is always a point of of, of protest almost to the um, to the State Department, which really irritates them. 
um, throughout. Now, those mistakes shouldn't have been made, but at the same time, you know, it, it is a state that's only recently established since, you know, just over 10 years. So that kind of, that kind of um, uh, activity uh, really was one that, that really, as I say, began to uh, constantly annoy the State Department officials. OK, well, it's a brilliant new book. Tavalera and Roosevelt, Irish and American Diplomacy in Times of Crisis, 1932 to 1939, published in hardback by Cambridge University Press. The author, Bernadette Whelan. And Bernadette, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on the programme, Patrick. Good evening to you. Uh, good evening. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The repeal of the Eighth Amendment was a turning point in Irish social history, especially in relation to the Catholic Church. And a new book examines developments in biomedical science, Irish law, and some central aspects of Catholic moral teaching, building a thorough analysis of controversies relating to issues such as contraception, abortion, IVF, surrogacy, and so on. The book is called Biomedical Controversies in Catholic Ireland, A Contemporary History of Divisive Social Issues. It's published in paperback by Aaron Press and costs 18 euros. 99. The author is Don O'Leary and Don, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. Can't we begin, I suppose, by defining bioethical issues? What exactly are we talking about? Bioethical issues in, in the context of my book uh, include contraception, abortion, assisted human reproduction, uh, assisted uh, matters of end-of-life matters, is assisted dying in other words, and Catholic control of healthcare services. Um, these are the main issues I, I deal with. But bioethics, of course, is a much broader subject than that. But I, I, do, I do not address other issues like environmental issues, for example. Very good. And I think a theme that runs through the book is this, or a sense that runs through it, is how the Catholic Church in Ireland hasn't really been able to lead on these issues or respond to these issues, that perhaps because of the, 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 the scandals, the child abuse scandals, it, it, it feels constrained, but it definitely doesn't seem to have been able to tackle them head on in the way it, it was able to do, for example, in, in previous decades. I think the Catholic Church in Ireland um, is constrained by um, um, an over-centralised church the, the Catholic hierarchy cannot take initiatives to change the teaching on, on bioethical issues because it, it is very tightly, it would be very tightly reined in by Rome and it has to take, take cognizance of, say, um, important uh, papal documents um, such as Humanae Vitae and Donum Vitae and Personae Dignitas. So it's it, it is very limited in its scope. Um, of course, the church has damaged its, its authority in other ways, as you say, through uh, its handling of, of, of the scandals, and it has shown very poor leadership. But in, in matters of doctrine, um, it's really dependent on the Catholic Church, I think, to change um, the, the ethical principles um, um, have been stated very authoritatively by the papacy. And now... I think the Vatican will find it very hard to change its teaching uh, simply because it, ha it has been so inflexible in the past. Uh, I think this is a process that will work out um, over a long period of time. But um, uh, the Irish people, you know, the, the Irish Catholics generally have moved on. Most Catholics now don't take much notice of what the church has to say. 
and you can see, and that's clearly evident in, in on issues such as abortion, and it's been very clear in the last decade on various referenda, you know, on say same-sex marriage. Um, I think the church has boxed itself in very tightly by number one insisting that the embryo has full human rights from the moment from from fertilization onwards. That is clearly not. Um, a position that will allow it any flexibility in changing its stance in the future. And secondly, its insistence that um, procreation or reproduction cannot be separated from, from sex. Uh, that is clearly a very inflexible position, and um, many Catholics in Ireland have clearly exercise their own moral judgment on these issues, these issues, say, in relation to IVF and surrogacy, for example. Um, so I don't think there will be... Um, I think this rift between what Catholics do in their ordinary lives and what the Church teaches has grown wider over time. You're critical of the Catholic hierarchy. Would you also be critical of Irish politicians for being slow to to talk about and, and try and deal with some of these bioethical issues? I, I think that, historically speaking, uh, Irish politicians have shown themselves remarkably fearful of dealing with these issues and have dragged their feet uh, <laughs> to, to remarkable effect o- o- over the years. We can see that, for example, with the commission, you know, in, in the way they addressed the report of the Commission on Assisted Human Reproduction. And, uh, that, that commission was set up by Michael Martin in, um, in, in, in 2000 and reported in 2005. And we are still awaiting legislation on matters such as um, in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. Um, now there, um, the British were much for, for the British were much quicker in dealing with this uh, because when IVF was pioneered by Patrick Steptoe and Robert Edwards um, when they carried out the first successful IVF fertilisation in 1978, the, the United Kingdom uh, set up a commission in 1982 under the chairpersonship of um, Dame Mary Warnock. And the, that commission issued its report in 1984, and legislation was in place um, several years later. In 1990, legislation was passed and took effect in August 1991. So our, neighbor, our next-door neighbour was very quick off the mark, but we, we have been just remarkably slow. What's also very interesting is the fact that some of these bioethical issues and questions are far from being settled in Ireland. So an issue like surrogacy, there's a lot of nuances and, and, and grey areas in something like assisted dying. Uh, there's, there's definitely uh, uh, different points of view there. So do you think that these will continue to be controversial for years to come? Uh, I, I do. I think by their very nature, um, because then these issues... Um entail moral judgment, judgments and uh, in, in moral matters of moral philosophy um, such as assist, you know, concerning assisted dying for example uh, th- there's no sort of clear um, right and wrong, there's no clear uh, you know, black and white here it's, 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 it, 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 it is a very uh, nuanced and complex issue and invariably people will, will, ma- will make different moral judgments 
but I, I think the Catholic Church will not have a huge impact on that decision making because I think people now think, you know, um, the Irish electorate are more independent minded, more educated, and uh, I suppose more cynical as well, given the scandals of the of the, of the past. Very good. Well, the book is called Biomedical Controversies in Catholic Ireland, A Contemporary History of Divisive Social Issues. It's published in paperback by Aaron Press and costs €18.99. The author, Don O'Leary. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Founded in 1795, Maynooth College has a singular place in the history of the Irish Church and indeed the Catholic Church globally. Its beginning was as a small seminary of 30 students and 10 professors, most of whom were fleeing the ravages of the French Revolution. Since then, it has educated many thousands of students and led the way in many branches of the arts and sciences. And there is a brilliant new book that brings together, well, memories, part history, part folk history, part aid memoir. It's called We Remember. Remember Maynooth, a college across four centuries. It's edited by Salvador Ryan and Father John Paul Sheridan, published in hardback by Messenger Publications. It costs €50. Delighted to welcome the two editors to the show tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, John Paul, I might begin with you and I suppose the approach you took with the book because you have all these different voices, wonderful voices, wonderful memories and it's a brilliant bringing together of pictures, of stories, of memories, of of records and, and pieces of history and it does become a rich tapestry as indeed Maynooth itself is. That's very much what we were after, Patrick. The reason being is that in uh, 1995, in the bicentennial of the college, uh, Patrick Corish, former professor of history, had written, if you like, the bicentennial history. Healy had written one in for the centennial history in 1895, and there were other sort of accounts of the college. So um, we were interested in, I suppose, preserving some of the voices that um, of people whom we knew and people who we sort of reached out to to give their own personal reminiscences. The reason being is because, um, you know, th- those are the voices that can, can be lost very, very quickly. Two examples. Um, first of all, the book was sort of taught about after the death of Father Ronan Jury, who's professor of homiletics. And we didn't have the benefit of a, of a contribution from Ronan. And that was bad because of the fact that, you know, he had such a rich sort of uh, history within the college. However, on the other hand, Father Andy McDonough, who was very recently at Maynooth, uh, one of his last pieces that he wrote was the piece that he contributed on the book from his personal point of view. And, and that's a voice that, you know, we, if you like, we gain. And it's interesting the number of people who have contributed to it, you know, including uh, the wonderful Mary O'Rourke and, uh, and wonderful photos and pictures as well. The, the interesting thing about the, the photographs and pictures was the fact that we could have actually uh, for every one that we picked to use in the book, we could have probably picked 10 more. Uh, I spent uh, a lovely afternoon going through uh, a lot of the photographic archive in the college with Anna Porter, who's the archivist, and Paula T. Nolan, who was both the photographer and the designer of the book. And uh, we just kept, oh, take that one, take that one. And then we kind of took a tour around the college and uh, we took various photographs. Kind of, we were trying to, you know, go at, there was quite a number of photographs in uh, the Corish book and, and indeed in the Healy book and various other books. But we were looking for kind of photographs that were unusual or, or photographs that hadn't been seen before. And we very much relied on 
the history department, the um, sociology department, Mary Corcoran and sociology department gave us uh, lovely photographs of the late Father Lee Moran, um, and other sort of unusual photographs that, uh, that may not have been seen in the college uh, or in, in publications in the past. And let's talk about your own article because uh, you look at class. Yeah, um, there is a, there's a tradition in the college that every, every year um, the students who are ordained for that year uh, are put up on, on the wall. And this was, it was a common thing in, in, in seminaries in Ireland indeed, but the, the tradition when this has gone back to um, a written record from the 1880s and, and has been continued on ever since. Uh, normally the class piece contains the students who are, will be ordained um, and also uh, a particular professor or member of staff to whom they considered was most instrumental in their formation. And also anything at events, you know, the election of the new Pope, the, the election of the new Archbishop, for instance, uh, can sometimes be. So it, it ends up as being quite um, a visual history of the uh, of the college. And, you know, in the, the words of the song, the year after year, after year the numbers get fewer. The class pieces have obviously got smaller over the years. The largest one was, I think, about 1913, and uh, there was over 100 on the class piece, whereas in the last number of years, my own, which was 1990, there were about 50-something. And then in the last number of years, obviously, they've got smaller and smaller. But that tradition is it's, it's a very much, again, part of, of the folk history of Manus and part of the visual record of, of the college and its, and its um, you know, not only priests from, from Ireland, but also from various parts of the world and beyond. Salvador, I want to talk to you about cinema and some brilliant work that you've done because, I, first of all, I want to hear about how Martin Sheen learned how to say mass at the Maynooth <laughs> College Chapel altar when he was making the movie Stella Days in 2011. Well, I mean, that, that went back to an email that came in to the, uh, to the theology office that was passed on to me. They were, looking, uh, they were making the film Stella Days uh, they were looking for a historical advisor. This film was going to be about a 1950s priest in uh, a small town in Tipperary who is very much into film and wants to set up a cinema. Of course, to great opposition from some of the uh, more conservative locals who don't want any Hollywood filth coming into a small uh, Tipperary town. So anyway, I got the email about this and said, you know, would you be involved as a historical advisor? I read down through it. I'm not a 20th century historian. I was going to say no, don't have the time. And then suddenly I found the part of the priest, Daniel Barry, would be played by Martin Sheen. Suddenly I was a 20th century historian, being a great fan of the West Wing. Um, as part of it, uh, I, I, I was heavily involved at a number of levels in the film, including the script and so on, and worked closely with Martin Sheen, who came out to Maynooth uh, and spent a number of hours in the college chapel um, learning how to say mass at the College Chapel altar. And in doing that, I enlisted the, the, uh, the, the help of, of someone who uh, John Paul just mentioned there, Father Ronan Drury, who had spent decades uh, teaching young students how to say mass. So I said Ronan was the perfect person to walk uh, Martin Sheen through the business of saying mass. It was interesting because Martin is, a, I mean, personally is a great man of faith. And as he was going through the motions, I suppose he had a certain great reverence for what he was doing. And uh, I do remember Ronan saying to him, you know, we need a little bit more of the humdrum about it. I mean, he's been a priest for 40 years. I mean, we want a little bit more 
irreverent familiarity. So he said, you know, don't be so irreverent about it. But I mean, Martin was a delight to work with. Um, he loved his time out there. And then, of course, we went out down to Tipperary to film a lot of scenes down in Feathered uh, afterwards. Um, but that was certainly a, a, a very uh, memorable uh, occasion for me and a very memorable experience where you, you learn an awful lot about, about filmmaking and what goes into it. Uh, let's go a little bit further into the past then and uh, a seminarian who uh, was speaking in the debating society against cinema but who went on to have a, a brilliant career uh-huh. on stage and screen himself. Well this 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 is a wonderful story. I just happened to be in the archives in Maynooth just looking for something to write on and I stumbled upon a set of minutes from the English uh, Debating Society from the mid-1940s. Now, if you think of the time of the mid-1940s, there was, I suppose, a great deal of apprehension and suspicion in Irish society at large around cinema and the influence of movies. Our first film censor, for instance, James Montgomery, wrote an article for studies entitled The Menace of Hollywood in 1941. He said, you know, all you need to, to judge a film is the Ten Commandments. The National Film Institute was founded in 1943, and it took as its core principles uh, the principles of a papal encyclical from 1936, the Pope Pius XI, which spoke of a holy crusade against the abuses of motion pictures. So that's the historical context. So imagine in 1945, I came upon these minutes, and in December, or actually December 1944, there was a motion uh, proposed to the Debating Society that the cinema is radically wrong in Ireland today. And it was proposed by a young Ruffalo student from Donegal, young Ruffalo seminarian. The following year, he was president of the society and another motion was proposed that Catholics should boycott the cinema with a view to counteracting its influence. And as I looked down through the, the minutes and looked at who was the proposer and then who was the president the following year, who was it? only Ray McNally. And I said, this, this is too good to be true. This is just too delicious. So I, I said, look, I'm not even going to take the word of the minutes first. So I, I took a photo image of it. I actually uh, got in touch with Angus, his son, Angus McNally, sent on the, the minutes that Ray had written out and said, look, is that your dad's writing? He got back to me immediately said, yep, that's dad. So for someone who actually went on to have a glittering stage career on, on the stage and on the silver screen, uh, I thought it was a it was a, it was a really lovely little vignette, and I said it has to go into the book. Oh well, it's one of many brilliant stories, memories, uh, recollections, and and historical records that are in the book. It's called "We Remember Maynooth: A College Across Four Centuries," uh, edited by Salvador Ryan and John Paul Sheridan, published in hardback by Messenger Publications. It costs fifty euro. And thanks so much for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. Patrick, thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book looks at the work of Ireland's finest photographer of the 20th century, Father Frank Brown, and presents some exceptional pictures of the beautiful Garden of Ireland. The book is called Wandering Wicklow with Father Brown. It's published in hardback by Messenger Publications and costs €19.95. Uh, it's put together by Robert O'Byrne, who edited it. And Robert, uh, thanks a million for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. It's a beautiful production. So can you tell us first about Father Brown? Who exactly was he? Well, um, Father Brown, Frank Brown, was 
a Jesuit priest for the greater part of his life. He was born in 1880. He went to uh, school with the Jesuits at quite a young age, so he conforms to the Francis Xavier Maxim, uh, give me a child to the age of seven and I'll give you the man, because they got him. Uh, he lived to the age of 80. He died in 1960. He was first and foremost a, a priest, as I say, a Jesuit, but he was a very talented, more than talented, in some ways almost a genius photographer, and he fitted this in around his clerical life. And some very interesting parts of his life as well, including a, a, a trip on the Titanic, but <laughs> fortunately for him, he got off before it left Southampton. It's probably the most famous incident in Father Brown's life, in Frank Brown's life. I mean, what's interesting about him is that he, as you say, sailed on the Titanic. His wealthy uncle, who was the Bishop of Cloyne, paid for him to do so, but only for the first couple of days. Um, and he was offered the opportunity to remain on board the vessel after it left Cove to go to New York. But his superior told him he couldn't do so. So he, luckily, he disembarked. Um, he happened to have taken photographs, as he did everywhere, um, and they were a unique record of what daily life was on board the ship. Uh, so that really made his name internationally because his photographs were exceptionally valuable after news of the ship sinking became public. Newspapers everywhere wanted copies of, of Brown's pictures. Um, he then also took part in the First War and took photographs uh, a lot of a lot of the places that he uh, spent time in during that as a, an army chaplain. What's interesting is that those two very dynamic events relatively early in his life were succeeded by a very long period in which not a lot happened, except that he took all these photographs. And is it true that Kodak offered him free film for life? Mm-hmm. I don't think Kodak realised he was going to live quite so long. Uh, but yes, they did. At a very early point, they recognised that this man was very talented um, and that he needed film, obviously. One of the things to point out about, about Brown is, as well, is that while he was taking all these photographs, he didn't own them. The order owned them and all the monies that he made, and sometimes that was quite considerable, he had to hand over to the order. Uh, the Jesuits still own all his pictures. It's a very stylish and imaginative book because it has the black and white photographs of Father Brown, but then there's some also wonderful photographs in colour of the same locations by Paula Nolan. Yes, Paula, who works with the publishers, with Messenger, um, proposed this. And it actually is a very clever idea because it allows us to compare then and now. And some of the photographs are over 100 years old. And they show us how much and also how little very often places have changed during the past century. I personally, and I know a lot of other people are inclined to moan about radical change in how places look and so forth. But one of the things about Paula's photographs that really comes through is in some way how little Ireland has changed over the decades. So tell me what was so special about him as a, as a photographer. Was it his use of light? Was it the way he approached the pictures? Because he was very much a visual artist. He was. And you see, since he was, so to speak, rediscovered in the 80s um, and his photographs came into the public realm again, a lot of people have been very interested in Father Brown's pictures, in Brown's photo photography, uh, as a chronicle of history, of an, you know, a, a, a document which gives us 
a visual accompaniment to the kind of written text that you and I would normally produce. Um, and they're invaluable from that point of view. But it seems to me, and my great argument about him is that he was also an artist and his talent, his visual talent has not been sufficiently recognized. When I go through his photographs, one of the key things that comes across to me is how often his pictures are like those of old master painters. Um, and and I've tried to make those references going through the through the book in relation to Wicklow, but it applies to them all, all, all the photographs he took over his lifetime. Um, that very often you you find these echoes of old master paintings, whether it's Dutch genre painters from the 17th century, or Irish landscape painters like George Barrett uh, and Ashford in the 18th century. Uh, that he clearly is one of those. He is an artist as much as anything else. It's, I think, a perfect book for these COVID times because <laughs> we're not really able to travel very far. And yet, thanks to these beautiful uh, reproductions of the photographs, we're able to travel with our imaginations. Yeah, um, we've arranged the book as well uh, as journeys. So it, it's divided into six sections, each of which covers a different area of Wicklow. You know, you can start imagining what it would be like to visit each of these different areas of Wicklow when the present restrictions are lifted and you're able to explore them. And to some extent, the book is a travel guide as much as anything else. In other words, it, it gives you a, quite literally a roadmap of different parts of Wicklow because Wicklow is an extraordinarily varied county. Um, and you're able to visit each of these and return to the site that Father Brown himself explored. Do you have a, a favourite photograph yourself? <laughs> I do. It's a very funny one. Well, actually, there's two. that You have to put up with two now, I'm afraid, Patrick. <laughs> um, the first of them is the one that's on the cover, which is a fantastic, very early photograph of the Dargal Glen. It's the earliest in the book. It dates from 1910. And as soon as I saw this photograph, I immediately knew that it had a, a precursor, which is George Barrett, the painter's view, almost at exactly the same spot, almost with exactly the same character, painted in the 1770s. And as I say, for me, that really established Brown as an artist uh, in, a, in a line, in a long line of Irish artists. My second favorite is a really charming picture of a man called Mr. Virtue, who was the butler at Shelton Abbey in the 1940s when it was still a private house. And it shows Mr. Virtue, a wonderful name for a butler, looking somewhat warily at the photographer as he opens the front door of the house to him uh, and peering out. And what's special about this photograph and the ones that follow is that Shelton Abbey, which today, as I'm sure you know, is an open prison. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever been there, Patrick. Uh, well, I, I have, but only for a morning, I can assure you, to, to explore the house. Anyway, it was, it was built for the Earls of Wicklow, the, the family called the Howards, and it remained that until 1950, when unfortunately they had to sell up, and a 13-day sale of the contents took place. It was one of the most gloriously stuffed houses in Ireland, and dealers came from all over the world to feast on it. Um, but Brown's photographs show us what those interiors look like just a year or two before the sale. 
So we have a record of what was then lost. Very good. Okay, well, the book is called Wandering Wicklow with Father Brown, a really beautiful production by Messenger Publications. Uh, It costs €19.95 and a brilliant job uh, by Robert O'Byrne. So, Robert, congratulations. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cavill, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be playing you our show on Thomas Kent, and we'll find out how he became the forgotten man of the 1916 Rising. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.